complete the purpose that Christ has given to him. And then there's the idea that he's going to communicate that gospel to others that has defined who he is. So those are the three elements that I want us to think about because I want us to adopt from the Apostle Paul's life a sense of his resolution and apply it to ourselves. That as we look to 2020, as we look to the rest of our lives, we would be committed to those three ideas as well. That we would be committed to, um, first of all, the idea of calculating our lives properly, the value of our lives. And then secondly, that we would be committed to completing the purpose that God has called us to in light of that value. And that thirdly, we would also be seeking to live such a life that we would communicate uh, the message of the gospel that defined the Apostle Paul, but which also defines us. So, I would like us this morning to think about this verse and to think about these elements that were clearly uh, involved in the life of the Apostle Paul and think about how we too can, how we ought to be, by the grace of God, ought to be committed to these three things as well. To uh, calculate clearly the proper value of our lives and then to complete the purpose of our lives that God has given to us and then communicate that message which has truly defined us as Christians. So in the first place then, uh, the first part of this resolution or this, that we see in the Apostle Paul involves the idea of the calculation of the value of our lives. And so I'm going to read the NIV translation once again, um, primarily because it's the one I memorized years ago. Uh, but I also think it has some wording here that communicates rather clearly to us. So the Apostle Paul begins by saying, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may, I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Okay, So he begins by saying, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Now, when you think about that, and you think about the three translations that we read, the, the essential idea there is that the Apostle Paul has calculated the value of his life. And he has calculated the value of his life with exceptional clearness. And he's calculated that value in light of the existence of God and in light of the grace of the gospel message. But clearly he has calculated the value of his life. What makes his life valuable? What makes his life meaningful? What makes his life have significance? Now, I want us to think about this because we have cultural narratives that speak to the value of human beings all the time. For the past three to four decades, that cultural narrative has focused upon the idea of, of self. That is to say, uh, how are you to calculate the value of your life? And the message has often been, you're to calculate the value of your life with respect to what most enhances and promotes 
your own life. Uh, this is so common that we have to stop and think about it. You know, back in the four decades ago, sometime uh, 70s, 80s, the Army took this concept as their recruiting model. Be all that you can be. Join the Army. I don't know who they were thinking they were going to fool with that, but they were essentially focusing in upon what had become current within our culture, that the most important thing about your life is your life. And the most important thing about life generally is becoming everything that you can become. That is, there can be no happiness, there can be no fulfillment, there can be nothing good or valuable about life unless you look at your life and you make your life everything that you can properly make your life to be. Now, our culture then said to people again and again, um, take care of yourself first. Look out for number one, and you are number one. Now, if you've flown a lot, you can understand a certain practical reason for taking care of yourself first if your cabin pressure is suddenly gone and the uh, oxygen mass drops out of the ceiling compartment and you are quickly going to lose consciousness unless you put that mask on and begin breathing. And so the, uh, the airline attendants will always say, to parents especially, uh, to uh, younger people taking care of older people. That's what Julie says. She has to hear this message on my behalf. Uh, that when it comes down, she has to put the mask on first, uh, take care of yourself first, so that you actually have the ability to help those around you that need to be helped. But the question is, does that approach work in the rest of life? Uh, does it make sense that the most important thing in life is for you to, first of all, ask yourself, what's going to make me happy? What's going to give me fulfillment? Uh, what am I going to do that, 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 that enables me to pursue my dreams? Is that how you're supposed to assess the value of your life? Well... Uh, this me-first approach has been applied to everything, uh, to marriages, uh, to parenting. The idea is you must take care of yourself first. People have been told repeatedly, you should answer these personal questions. What do I want? What will make me happy? What gives me fulfillment? We've also seen that when this approach is analyzed with any degree of intelligence and sophistication, that this satisfying oneself first affects everything else in your life, and it affects everything else in your life in a rather negative way. Um, when you think this way, then other people are to be used in order to enhance your value. Your possessions are to be used to enhance the value of how you evaluate and value yourself. Um, attainments of power are done for the sake of one's self. 
Other people are important insofar as they promote your sense of value. Now, when people actually do this, when people actually live their lives this way, truly live this way with consistency, when it's first and foremost about them, we have a diagnosis for that. We identify such people as narcissists, as people who put themselves at the center of their own universe, people who are flawed because they have way too much self-love. And if any of you have ever had um, uh, contact with someone who's a narcissist, um, you realize that you can't put two narcissists in the same room together. <laughs> the universe isn't big enough for both of them. It's a difficult, difficult thing. Now, there's an older approach in our culture in terms of how we should find value. And it's a healthier kind of an approach, but it too has its deficiencies. Um, in the older part of American culture, going back to, let's say, even the 60s, but before the 60s, it began to get eclipsed in the 60s and 70s. But it was the case that an American president in the 1960s could say this, and, and saying this could capture the youth of America. Ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. Uh, there was a deep sense that that we can find meaning, that we can find great value in our lives uh, in serving other people, even serving other people sacrificially. Uh, this was the great impetus, I think, for the Peace Corps back in the 60s. Going out, giving your life in the service of humanity in some sense. So there's a far greater sense of truth in that older narrative. But finding your value and living for others can be a very broken approach to life. What if your service isn't appreciated? What if you really don't get the recognition you think your service to others deserves? How can you be sure that your life has value when those you are serving haven't rendered any feedback to say, this is really significant, this is really important. I've known people who have worked hard for companies and then retired and never had anyone significant in the company or corporation or organization come along and say, thank you for what you've done. Your, your contribution here is going to be missed. And if that's what you've been living for, if your career has been that by which you have measured your value, if you think your service to others is what states the value of who you are, then you will never have a stable sense of value at all. Because it will always be dependent upon what other human beings think about you. You know, this could be peer pressure in high school. Uh, this could be colleagues at work. This could be professional status among professionals. If, if, if we find our value in what we do with respect to other human beings, if that is what it is, 
we will sadly find our value consistently being broken. Now, look at the Apostle Paul. We can see clearly that the Apostle Paul's sense of value was not connected to himself, and it wasn't connected to others. Ultimately, it's connected to Christ. Because if we don't do it this way, if we find ourselves hungering to make the world celebrate us, or if we find ourselves hungering to make other people recognize our service, then we have failed to put God first and foremost. And when we fail to put God first and foremost, what we do put first and foremost is idolatry. You know, the first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Which means, but you, you shall have me as your God. God's place in our lives is to be ultimate. But if we put something else there, then we're committing idolatry. Uh, in, the, in the book of Jeremiah, uh, the prophet Jeremiah uh, says something significant to the Jews uh, who were about to be delivered unto Babylon because of their sins against God. And, and the Spirit of God, speaking through Jeremiah, boils it all down to a very, very simple thing. Um, God says, For my people have committed two evils. Just two. Interesting, just two. Reduced it all down to two things. Um, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Which speaks directly to this. Uh, if we have forsaken God as the very center of our lives, then we're going to actually gravitate towards some broken cistern. Uh, attempting to establish the value of our lives in a self-centered way or attempting to establish the value of our lives in a others-centered kind of way. Both of those are broken cisterns because only God himself is ultimately the fountain of living water. Now, coming back to the Apostle Paul, I want us to think about his life and his perspective, how he calculated the value of his life. Paul makes it clear that in the calculation of the value of his life, he's placing himself not as first in any sense, but he's looking to what he's called to do by Christ in terms of finding his value in Christ and in Christ's purposes for him. Now, the Apostle Paul has given us quite a bit of biographical information about this because before he was a Christian, he actually was focused on one of those broken cisterns. He was very much focused on measuring the value of his life according to his own self. We see this testimony. We see Paul talking about this in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, what he has to say is uh, his valuation of his life, his calculation was based upon his confidence in the flesh. He was convinced that he had more reasons than any of the other Jews to have this self-confidence in himself. So 
In Philippians chapter 3, he gives this personal tribute about how much his confidence in himself was justified. So he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Those are Paul's credentials for finding the value of his life in being the best possible anti-Christian Jew he could possibly be. And he saw all of that to his credit. All of that as establishing his value. But then he goes on to say, what is it like when he became a Christian? It's his conversion testimony about how radically he changed. So he says, well, whatever gain I had with respect to his self-reputation, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. The Apostle Paul moves from finding value in self to discovering the surpassing value, the, the all-surpassing value is found in knowing Christ. With respect to this idea of calculating the value of our lives, we need to be very, very clear. We need to see what's going on here by the grace of God in the Apostle Paul's life. And we need to recognize that that example is the example that we ought to follow. We ought to calculate our lives not according to self and not according to others, but according to what God has done for us in Christ. The value of your life is measured by this reality. The God who created all things delivered up his own son upon the cross to pay the penalty for your sins so that by faith in Christ you could know Jesus Christ and have everlasting life. Or as some people would say it today, God, the creator and redeemer, through the work of Christ, has written you into his story. If God is of greatest value, he has now included you into the story of greatest value. That's where your value lies. The redemptive God redeeming you to be his own. As Paul says, the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, moving on. The second element of resolution here is that of completion. That is, we need to resolve to be thoroughly committed to the completion of our life's purpose. Now, this is a key element in what the Apostle Paul says. So he says this in the NIV translation, that he might finish the race and complete the task. So life here is described metaphorically as a race. And the purpose of that race is a task, a task that has been given to us, assigned to us. And so Paul says that his, his desire is to complete 
the race and to complete the task that the Lord has given to him. Committed to completing this ministry, uh, this service that Christ has given to him. Now, let's think about two things in this regard. Paul had a profound sense of the God-givenness of his purpose. Now, when you think about that, okay, um, maybe your life doesn't feel anything at all close in any kind of analogy with the life of the Apostle Paul, because after all, uh, Paul is uh, on his way to Damascus. He's moving in this direction in terms of persecuting the church. The Lord Jesus appears to him in a heavenly vision and stops him, knocks him down, strikes him blind, and Paul's life changes on a dime and becomes 180 degrees different than it was before. And the Lord Jesus communicates directly and personally to the Apostle Paul, this is going to be your life's purpose. You're going to declare the gospel to the Gentiles and you're going to be that uh, that means by which they are delivered out of the power of Satan and into the kingdom of Christ. But I want you to understand that that God-givenness that the Apostle Paul had with respect to his life's purpose is a God-givenness that Scripture declares to you as well. Uh, the analogy and the application is this. To everyone that Christ saves by his work, there is a purpose given to us. It may not be at all like the Apostle Paul's in the way that the Apostle Paul was called to be this great apostle and church planter and so forth. But every Christian has a life's purpose. And the Apostle Paul has stated this in Ephesians chapter 2 after describing being dead in trespasses and sins, after describing while we were dead, God making us alive in Christ, after describing that it's by grace that we are saved through faith and it's not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of our work so that no one should boast, he says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God prepared in advance for us to walk in them. Every child of God has been created into union with Christ with a God-givenness of purpose that we are called to do those good works which God himself has prepared in advance for us to do. Now, at different times, we have talked about what these good works look like. Uh, we've, we've talked about how, uh, in the New Testament, good works can span from uh, the good that you would do to your next-door neighbor and bringing in his trash can uh, to volunteering uh, you know, like in a soup kitchen, kitchen or, or all sorts of things can be good works. But essentially, our calling is to do good in this world as often as we can 
with everyone that God providentially brings into our lives to do good toward them in fulfillment of the second greatest commandment, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and fulfillment of the, uh, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You see a particular situation, you can help you do that. But the idea is, is that your purpose has far more to do with living out a life of love toward other human beings in whatever job or career or vocation that God would call you to have then, then, it, then, then your purpose is about, you know, becoming the next great mathematician or, uh, you know, the, the next great film critic or the next great poet or something like that. Notice that every Christian, every ordinary Christian has an extraordinary purpose. Because the extraordinary purpose is to live out those things that God himself has foreordained for you to walk in them. Now, let me say something else about living out that purpose. I taught high school for 13 years. Uh, some very sincere Christian students. And I would talk to them when they would have academic struggles and I would say to them, have you prayed about this? Well, yeah, just before I take a test. <laughs> well, well, no, that's... <laughs> uh, you're struggling to learn the material. Isn't it your purpose to be a student? Isn't it God's purpose for you to be here to learn? Yes. And you're struggling to learn this, aren't you? Yes. Have you asked God to give you help? You sometimes say you can't focus. You sometimes say you're disorganized. You sometimes say that you seem to run out of time. Have you asked God for help with any one of these particular things that you struggle with? And then take him to Ephesians 2.10. Is not your schoolwork currently a part of the good works that God has foreordained for you to walk in them? Then, then if this is part of your purpose, why wouldn't God help you? I'm not saying that you should pray instead of studying. <laughs> but if you're a student, you're called to study, but you should pray as you study this prayer. God, help me. God, give me understanding. God, enable me to do this. God, help me when I can't seem to get it to begin to get it. Help me not to quit. Help me to persevere. Help me, help me, help me. Now, the interesting thing is, is that some students begin to really understand that. But how many of you in your life as someone in a career, someone in a job, someone who's a stay-at-home mom, Biggest job in the world, stay-at-home mom. How many of you have faced difficulties and challenges and said, Lord, this is what you've called me to do. This is my purpose. Help me. Not just when the crises come, but as a matter of fact of daily living. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 
are absolutely instrumental in this regard. The, the apostle, uh, the, the King Solomon said, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. It doesn't say, trust him only when you're in a crisis. Trust him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. So the extraordinary aspect of our ordinary callings is that we can trust God to be involved in everything we do if we turn toward him. The idea is if we're going to complete the purpose for which God has ordained us, we can only do it in dependence upon Christ. Now, the last point. last point is somewhere here in my notes. Thirdly, the matter of communication. Um, we need to resolve to be faithful to communicate the redemptive message which has defined our lives. Uh, look at what the Apostle says in the last part of this verse. Uh, he wants to complete his, his, his mission, which is the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, we know Paul as an apostle. We know him as a missionary, an evangelist, a church planter, a discipler, a trainer, a mentor of men. We know him as a theologian. We know him as a writer of sacred scripture, a mouthpiece of divine revelation, a debater for the truth. We know him as a living and dying martyr. But when Paul wants to sum up who he really is, it's someone who wants to be uh, communicating the gospel of God's grace. He wants to be someone who is speaking about that which has radically changed him and radically defines who he is. It becomes very clear, especially in the book of Ephesians that we have referenced, the book of Philippians that we have referenced, that the story of the gospel and its impact upon Paul has now become his story. Or to put it this way, we read Paul talking about himself in Philippians chapter 3, and he talks about his former life, and he talks about his current life, and when he talks about his current life, it is all wrapped up in what the gospel has done for him. What the gospel has done to him. What the gospel has done to create who he is. Now, I often hear people saying, I struggle to share the gospel. I struggle to talk to others about Jesus. Do you struggle to talk about yourself? I mean, if someone asks you, Ten questions, would you be able to answer ten questions about yourself? Sure. 
I mean, most people can talk about themselves. Some of us talk too much about ourselves. But we can talk about ourselves. The Apostle Paul could never talk about himself without talking about what had defined who he was, which was Christ. And when I reflect upon this, I think about how many opportunities I've had perhaps with strangers who have asked me questions about myself and I kept thinking, I wonder when I might be able to bring Jesus into this conversation. As though bringing Jesus in would be a foreign element to talking about myself. And reflecting upon that, what does that mean? It means... I have not yet identified myself with the gospel and and the way it defines me as deeply and as clearly as I should. So really the challenge here, the resolution to be someone who communicates this message more clearly is really the challenge to ask ourselves, has the gospel really and radically defined who we are? Have we come to the point where it would be impossible for us to tell our story to someone else without testifying to the gospel of God's grace? As I think about this coming year, uh, I think about a hymn that we find in the Trinity hymnal. It's all for Jesus. What's significant about that hymn was that it was written on New Year's Day, 1871. And the hymn writer, Mary James, had written a letter to her friends, and she said this. I have written more, talked more, prayed more, and thought more for Jesus than in any previous year and have had more peace of mind resulting from a stronger and more simple faith in Him. So for her New Year's resolution, she wrote this hymn, which was adopted in our denomination by our denominational college and seminary. All for Jesus. It was her personal expression of devotion to Christ and her hope that in this coming year, this year in her life would reveal all for Jesus. All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my being's ransomed powers, all my thoughts and words and doings, all my days and all my hours. Let my hands... (coughs) Perform his bidding. Let my feet run in his ways. Let my eyes see Jesus only. Let my lips speak forth his praise. Worldlings prize their gems of beauty. Cling to gilded toys of dust. Boast of wealth and fame and pleasure. Only Jesus will I trust. Since my eyes were fixed on Jesus, I've lost sight of all beside. So unchanged my spirit's vision, looking at the crucified. Oh, what wonder, how amazing, Jesus' glorious 
king of kings, deigns to call me his beloved, lets me rest beneath his wings. I would hope that like the Apostle Paul, we would be able to say as we go into this year, however, I count my life worth nothing. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. May the gospel of God's grace more deeply define who we are, that we can communicate that gospel more clearly. And may we run this race with perseverance so that we can complete God's purposes in and through us to do all the good works he's called us to do. And may we every day calculate clearly the value of our lives, that our life has value before the Creator and Redeemer God because of his great love for us, because he has saved us to know him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Thank you for all that you have done for us in your son, Jesus. And encourage us, Lord. Encourage us this year that every single day we have a high and holy purpose. And that's to live for Christ, uh, to live for him in every way. And make that, Lord, uh, the way we value ourselves, that you have valued us, redeemed us, made us part of your everlasting story, and given us that which will most satisfy our soul. And may we also, like Mary James, live in such a way that it's all for Jesus in his name.